Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to 1 John. 1 John is toward the end of your Bible, about the third or fourth book from the end. And today we come to the end of a short series in which we've tried to trace the theme of light in different parts of the Bible. We've been seeing that it's a mega theme in the Bible with many facets and angles to it. And so we've seen light, literal light, at the dawn of time from Genesis 1, where God said, let there be light, and there was light, and it was good. From then on, for much of the Bible, some of these key light passages use light as a metaphor for God and his ways or for a spiritual dawning to take place, like in Isaiah Six or seven hundred years before Christ, God was foretelling of a day in which light would dawn. Light would come to his people and upon his people for them to be light in this world. We saw in John 1 where Jesus is that promised light. Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, came to be light and life and to fulfill those promises of a day when light would dawn upon this world. We looked at 2 Corinthians 4 in this series, which gives us the individual personal perspective of how dark hearts, like all of us naturally have, can begin to take on Christ and his light. And it's not because we apprehend him aright, not because we want him to come in and invade our lives with his light. It's only because God, the same God who spoke light into creation at the beginning of time, can speak light into our dark hearts for us to see the glory of the knowledge of God that shines on the face of Christ. We've seen from Ephesians 5 that those who have that light in their hearts which shines on Christ, well, they used to be children of darkness, but now they're children of light. And so they're to walk as children of light. And last week, Trent brought us to Matthew 5, where Jesus taught his followers to be lights in this world, to be visible, to be bright, to be present, so that those around us would see good works of love done in confirmation of the gospel that we speak, and they would come to believe and even join us in giving glory to God our Father. If we were to draw this series out further, we could go to several other passages, like the one Drew read earlier uh, from 2 Timothy. We could go to Revelation 21 and 22, where at the end of time, we read that there'll be no need for a sun or lamps in houses because God's glory will illuminate everything. But this week, I'd like to bring this series to a close by looking at 1 John 1 which in some ways summarizes a lot of what we've seen about light already. In some ways, it simplifies much of what we've seen. John simplifies it with this simple but profound statement in verse 5, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John sees that line as basic theology, as a cornerstone for Christian living. It's almost as if John had been asked, what is Christianity? And then 1 John 1 is his answer. He's summarizing his own religious experience, 
He's summarizing his message and his ministry. And he's telling his readers why he wrote what he did. So here's what he wrote, at least in the first chapter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Well, to begin, it may be helpful for us to know that John wasn't writing this out of the blue or just as a a random encouragement Like many letters of the New Testament, John picked up his pen and wrote out of urgency and need because there was a problem on the other end that he was addressing. Toward the end of John's life, years after preaching and ministering in what is now modern-day Turkey, false teachers had moved in and began to spread some false teaching. That, that false teaching would later go by the name of Gnosticism because it was all about special knowledge they had, so-called special knowledge. They thought of it as Christianity 2.0. Again, they thought of it as Christianity 2.0. What it was was taking old Greek philosophical ideas, like this one, that all matter is bad, and then mingling it with parts of Christianity. And I stress parts of Christianity because you indeed will need to cut out and re-envision some things of Christianity if, say, physicality, matter, is all bad. What do you do with Jesus? Some of these false teachers taught that Jesus, on the one hand, was separate from the Christ. Jesus was human. The Christ was divine. The Christ one day came upon this Jesus and was with him for a while, spoke through him for a time, but then left him some time before the cross. Others later on taught that Jesus only appeared to have a body, again, because this physical matter is bad thing. And so as they recreated and reimagined Christianity, they progressively moved away from what had been passed down, what had been taught by the apostles, what had been written down by this stage. They taught a, a bodiless Christ, a, a Bibleless Christianity. 
then the cross became optional, or even worse, an embarrassment, something to have to explain away. And with an optional cross, then sin becomes redefined, dismissed, or explained as something else. It's like a bad game of theological Jenga, where all the essential pieces had been pulled out and the whole thing was tottering. So John writes to get these key Jenga pieces back in that this thing might be firm and solid for those to whom he was writing. And that's needed in every age. Many today profess to be Christian, but they do want to integrate other ideas and philosophies and religions. Many today profess Christ, but imagine him to be like this or, or that, not just what the Bible says he is. Even longtime Christians, even those who are healthy Christians for a long time, do sometimes begin to subtly adopt dangerous distortions, perhaps not even realizing that they're going astray. It can be as simple as minimizing sin, and it can be as simple as Christ moving slightly off from the center of things to the side, or his cross moving off to the side and becoming less relevant. So let's dig into 1 John 1. We can break these 10 verses down into three sections. The first is the basis of Christianity. Verses 1 and 2. John begins by telling us what the basis of Christianity is, but he begins with a peculiar first word, that. It's not good to begin sentences with the word that, at least if you're writing for a, a language teacher or a grammar a Nazi or something like that. But, but John, almost like he's writing and beginning with a mid-sentence, he, he gives this really long, it's actually a sentence, but it, it goes on for three verses in the ESV. Verses one through three, all one sentence with multiple breaks and M dashes and semicolons. And it's all very difficult to follow. It helps simply to know that he's talking about Jesus. That the that, at the beginning of verse one, it refers to Jesus. You see, at the end of verse 1, it's concerning the word of life. That's Jesus. So he begins with that. That which was from the beginning. That's Jesus. He's eternal. As verse 2 will say, he's the eternal life which was with the Father. Before anything else was in this, this world, before there ever was this world, Jesus existed. He's not only with the Father back then, but he is God himself along with the Father. And yet, in space and time, he was made manifest, verse 2 says. He became the God-man. Now, that means not that God jumped into a human body and rode it around for 30-some years or so. No, God became man. Two natures, one person. It's mysterious. But Scripture is clear that Jesus wasn't a human with God-like powers, nor was he a God 
who appeared to be a man but wasn't. If you take either of those paths, then you have to carve out significant parts of the Bible. In our day, most skeptics think that Jesus was just a man who did a pretty good job duping people into thinking he was something more than a man. John's day, though, it was the opposite. Jesus' divinity was sort of assumed. It was this humanity that they wanted to dismiss or reinvent. And so John begins by getting real tangible. First, he's eternal, but then it gets tangible as he runs through the human senses from his own experience and the experience of other apostles and other eyewitnesses. He can say, that which we have heard, we heard him. He is that which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, taking it up a notch from having seen him. He says, we looked upon him, we gazed upon him, we beheld him. That which we have even touched with our hands. Now this stuff wasn't limited to one single experience for John. John was one of the first disciples along with his brother James. He was in the inner circle of the 12, and then the inner circle of the inner circle, the three, with James and Peter and John. He was there for it all. He heard Jesus' bold teachings again and again. No doubt he memorized parts of it before he wrote it down in what we call John's gospel account. He had heard Jesus' tender words to people who are hurting. He had seen the miracles and the casting out of demons. He had heard the predictions of Jesus' death and resurrection. He had seen Jesus pray and heard him pray. He didn't just get a glimpse of Jesus. He gazed upon him. He watched him perhaps fall asleep or, or get hungry and then eat. John saw the transfiguration. He saw something of Jesus' unveiled glory there upon the mountain and heard the voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. He heard it. Ten times in these first five verses of 1 John 1, John says something about Jesus' tangibleness, his observability, if I can make up some words. Jesus was manifest, he was heard, he was seen, he was beheld, he was touched. And you can remember how after the resurrection, Jesus emphasized the fact that his body was a physical body. It was transformed, yes, but he was no ghost. He said in Luke 24, see my hands, see my feet, it's myself, it's me. Touch me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Christianity is dependent upon a human who's God, Jesus. He's the God-man. What is Christianity? It's a person and it's founded upon these eyewitness testimonies. These things were written down in the lifetime of those who saw and heard and touched Jesus. They were written down by those who saw, heard, and touched Jesus. Or at least in Luke's case, he didn't see and hear Jesus, but he interviewed those who did see and hear and touch Jesus. It wasn't limited to one guy. Hence John says here, we saw, we saw, we saw. 
It wasn't limited to the 12 or even to the biblical authors. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that after the resurrection, Jesus showed up at various times with various people and once showed up to 500 people at once. And then Paul says, most of whom are still alive. Why does that matter? Well, they're around. These are people you can find. You know, ancient Palestine's not that big. You can wander around, keep asking people, are you one of the ones who saw him alive? You're going to bump into someone. In the gospel accounts, we often have these seemingly needless details, like people's names, people who aren't central to the story. It's sort of bad storytelling, but it's great historicity. Like when Mark tells us about the guy who had to carry Jesus' cross, he tells us it was Simon of Cyrene from the country who had two sons, Alexander and Rufus. Five details about one guy who's just a blip on the screen. Why? Well, presumably, he's still around. Or at least his sons are. You, you can ask around enough. You can go into the country and ask about Simon of Cyrene. You might bump into his sons who can tell you, yeah, it's for real. He really did carry the cross. One thing that sets the personal testimony of Christianity apart from other world religions is the multitude of witnesses and the number of occasions in which Christ was observed, seen, and heard, or even touched. Very different, say, than and how Mormonism started with Joseph Smith in upstate New York, and he found some stones there as he was alone. That's different. People here have seen Jesus they know of Jesus. They spent time with Jesus. Christianity was not birthed by some telephone game where one started a lie and then that lie propagated and multiplied. It was all very public. Paul could say to Agrippa, these events that I'm telling you, I'm sure none of it has escaped your notice, Agrippa, for none of this had been done in a corner it was all very public and known. Still, you might wonder what good that is for you today where you don't get to see, behold, or touch Jesus as John got to. Well, verse 2 tells us they testify to what they saw. They proclaim it to you. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. In God's plan, yes, he could have had this plan where Jesus, maybe once a year, shows up to earth, shows everyone his hands, his feet, his side, does a miracle or two. You get to see it, and then you decide whether it's real or not, and you got what John got. There you go. Sure, God could have done that, I suppose, but he chose instead to show some and those would tell others and tell others and tell others and tell others and tell others. And this is the nature of faith. Hebrews 11 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. You know, that story, that great story of doubting Thomas. After the resurrection, he hasn't seen yet. He says, I won't believe until I can put my finger in his hands. We don't know if he actually did, but Jesus said when he showed up, go ahead, touch, don't doubt, 
believe. Praise God that Thomas got that up-close physical experience with the risen Lord. Praise God also that John wrote it down for you to hear about it and also to hear, blessed are those who believe and haven't seen. That's us. Why else should you believe? Well, John goes on to give some reasons. He gives the purpose of Christianity, secondly. Verses 3 and 4 gives us the purpose of Christianity. What is the purpose of Christianity? We've seen the basis. The purpose of Christianity could be explained several different ways. You could say the purpose of Christianity is the glory of God. That's the answer to many big questions. But for John's purposes, he gives us a limited but true answer to the question. The purpose of Christianity, the purpose of Christ coming in the flesh, the purpose of John writing this letter is twofold. Verse 3, it's for fellowship. And verse 4, it's for joy. Verse 3, that which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you that you too might have fellowship with us. Fellowship. That oft-used word in Christian circles. We all know what fellowship is. Fellowship is chips and dip with Christians. Without Christians, it's just chip and dips. That's chips and dip. Uh, Football with Christians, that's fellowship. Just with other people, it's, it's just called football. But with Christians, it's fellowship. No, that's maybe the perception we sometimes communicate, but it's deeper than that. And in some ways, it's even simpler than that. It's not always such an event. It's this. We have this in common. It's, it's relationship. It's commonality. It's purpose. It's, it's partnership. And John wrote that they might have fellowship with him and with the apostles and with all who believe. When we believe in Jesus, we share that that profound belief with other people. It's a cosmic connection, a spiritual one, an eternal one, a boundary-transcending connection. John writes that they would believe in this Jesus and have the same kind of Jesus and and trust his witness about this Jesus. And as they do, they would share this Jesus. Because as he goes on to say, Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So fellowship is multidimensional. It's vertical and it's horizontal. It's with God and it's with those who are in fellowship with him. The second purpose, verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Isn't it interesting here that John says that one of his purposes in writing is so that our joy would be complete. On this end of the letter, the the sending of the letter, not on the other end? Is that what he means? Well, no. It's probably implied that he expects them to have joy. No doubt as he expects them to share in fellowship with God and with his son Jesus and with him and with all those who believe. So no doubt he also assumes that they will share in joy in this Christian faith. But John also writes this as a spiritual father. He calls his readers throughout this letter, my little children. 
It should remind us, perhaps if we're familiar with that little letter called 3 John, that there John rejoiced to hear that they were walking in truth. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. So this is the Christian life. It's something about Christ, him coming, him in physical form, him a man and God. That spoken and spoken and spoken and passed along. And for those who believe this Christ and trust in him, they have fellowship with God and with Jesus. They have fellowship also with each other. And this produces multiplying joy. Joy that one day will be complete. I'm glad I'm a Christian. That's some good stuff. Fellowship with God, fellowship with others, and joy that one day will be complete. Now, I don't want to oversell it. If you're not a Christian, you should know Christianity is hard. There's some added things. I mean, I feel like as a Christian, you might, as a non-Christian, look at a problem or a dilemma or a task with a certain number of dimensions to it, and, and Christians have to think about more dimensions for their tasks. I think if I wasn't a Christian, I, well, for one, I'd, I'd have a hobby or, or more hobbies. I, Sunday morning would be free, and I'd probably have more money if I wasn't a Christian. Christianity isn't easy. It doesn't mean joy and no sorrow. In some ways, it means multiplied sorrows, different sorrows. But, oh, I, I can't put in words to you what it means to be right with God. To be in fellowship with Jesus, the Savior and King of Kings, to talk with him and to read his words and to believe that he really cares for me. Are you kidding? To believe that we can share him and share this forever? Oh, that's so sweet. Joy, unspeakable comfort and in peace that passes all understanding it's good to be a christian then thirdly john moves into what we could call the conditions and comforts of christianity verses 5 through 10 now before we get into why I call this comforts uh, conditions and comforts of christianity let me point out something of the structure of these last five or so verses. Look down in your Bibles, if you would. Notice that verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10 all begin the same way. If we say. In those verses, John is anticipating error, falsehood, probably what people around him were actually saying, assuming, or even teaching. And he's correcting that. If you say X, Y, and Z, then here's the problem with that. And then in between those three sayings, if we say this, there are words of comfort there. So he's clarifying the conditions for Christianity with these tests. If you say this, then that, that's trouble. But in between, he's providing statements of great comfort, conditions and comforts of Christianity. And yet, that structure works nicely and neatly, but I left out verse 5, 
Before this imaginary dialogue takes place, starting in verse 6, we have verse 5. This is the message which we've heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Meaning God is glorious, radiant, big, eminent. He's also holy and righteous, pure. God's light is like truth. It shows, it exposes. All this is wrapped up in this idea. God is light. And from there, I think John assumes a problem. I think he assumes that if God is light, and he is, and if we assume that we're not light, at least like that, with no darkness at all, then how can we have fellowship with God and with Jesus Christ? I think he assumes that problem because of passages like Habakkuk 1, your eyes are too pure to look upon sin. Because of the fact that light and darkness have no fellowship or God dwells in unapproachable light. If God is all light and no darkness, how can we have this, this fellowship spoken of earlier? And I think John's going to anticipate three bad ways to answer that. That's the dialogue that takes place in verses 6 through 10. Three ways false teachers had been promoting error. The first error in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, some had gone around saying, the way I walk, that is the way I live, has nothing to do with my relationship with God. It doesn't affect my relationship with God. It doesn't really matter what I do with my body. Remember their idea of physical matter being indifferent or bad and having really no relationship to what's way more important, the inside, the spiritual, the soul. You can imagine how that would lead to an idea that then physical actions, they don't change anything on the inside. It's just physical. This stuff doesn't matter. What we need to do is get on with this, get going, and then maybe one day we'll be freed from these bodies or cages. But what these bodies do in the meantime is rather moot. I've talked with some professing Christians who had rationalize their sin in some similar kind of ways. Like, for example, the Bible is very clear that sex outside of marriage is prohibited for Christians. And yet I've talked with more than one Christian who said something like, well, what's the big deal about certain parts coming in contact with certain parts? It's just, it's just geography, as one guy put it to me. One guy said, well, God knows my heart, and that's what's most important. I don't think he's that concerned about what I do with my body. And besides, we're getting married sometime this year. So, well, no, no, for John, what you do with your body matters. How you walk 
not literally with your feet so much, but how you live, how you live out your life. Don't walk in darkness, John says. Don't have a life that is characterized by sin, by darkness, by hiding, by selfishness, by by, by some sort of self-autonomy. Regardless of what you say or think about your relationship with God, A life that's characterized by darkness is living a lie. It's not practicing truth. It's practicing hypocrisy. So Christian, it does matter to God how you live. Caring how you live is not in tension with the gospel of God's free grace. In fact, not caring how you live is in tension with the gospel of God's free grace. And glorious grace. But if you hear that with only fear and trembling and doubt, and you're wondering this morning whether you've fled the darkness enough, whether you walk in the light enough, often enough, deeply enough, well, hear this good news in verse 7 that if we walk in the light, As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Walking in light, by way of definition, is not walking in perfection, or else we wouldn't need any cleansing. It's cleansing for those who walk in the light. And yes, walking in the light means walking in God's ways. That's a big part of it. Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. But walking in the light also means walking before God in honesty, in vulnerability, not hiding anything, including our sin. We can't deal with our sin by pretending that our sin doesn't affect our relationship with God. One sin does not affect my standing before God, but sin does affect my relationship with God. I can grieve the Holy Spirit. There are certain things that please the Lord and some things that don't please the Lord, and we're called to, darn it, please the Lord. But when we don't please him, when we grieve the Holy Spirit, what do we do? Well, we grieve with the Spirit about our sin. And we bring our sin and our grief to God. He can do something about it. That's confession. That's what it means to walk in the light. Sometimes you walk in the light with your sin. You're open with God about it. And as we walk in the light, we'll have Fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sins. A second error. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we've deceived ourselves and the truth is not in us. Apparently some were saying that they didn't have a sin nature, that they didn't have a bent towards evil or wickedness, that they were basically good. Some today might put it in terms like this. Yes, my life has its problems, but there's an explanation for that. It's the way I was raised. It's, it's my environment. 
learned behaviors, psychological neuroses, circumstances, missed opportunities. That explains why my life is less than ideal and I'm frustrated in it. But the explanation that there's this propensity to sin within me, it seems archaic, doesn't it? It seems like that was the explanation for the problems of the world back thousands of years ago, but we've gotten more sophisticated now. We even got scientific about it now, and I can explain why I do what I do apart from that. I don't need that. Well, if that's you, John says to you, you are deceiving yourself. And the truth of the gospel is not in you. But here's the good news. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To confess our sins is to bring our sins before God. To walk in the light verbally. To acknowledge our sins Literally, the word confess means to say the same, to say the same. It's to say of sin what God says of sin and to do it before him, to acknowledge it, to admit it, to not make excuses for it, to see it for what it is and to begin to turn from it. It's walking in the light. It's bringing it to the light. Again, this is such a good thing to do because God already knows about it. You can sweep it under the rug. You can pretend it's not there. You can pretend everything's fine. You can pretend he doesn't really care. He doesn't really see. But he does. We might as well talk to him about it. And how good of him that we can talk to him about it, not in fear of a backhand, but with hope of the blood of Christ cleansing us from all our sin. In fact, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins when we confess it. This is covenant language. Faithful and just. Jesus died on the cross in place of us and our sins. Therefore, when we acknowledge that we have no hope but in him, and that we're once again finding ourselves to be needy sinners, and Christ is a great saving hope for us still, we can have every assurance that he is faithful and just to deliver us, to forgive us, and to cleanse us. So this confession thing is an ongoing thing. Verse 9 here does resemble something of what it looks like to come to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins for the very first time. It looks like this. Confess your sins to him, believe upon him, and believe that your sins are forgiven. But this is written to believers. This isn't a gospel tract verse necessarily, which means then that this is, this is a large part of the Christian life to go on in confession. It's something we do at first, at the beginning of the Christian life, and it's something we do until Jesus comes back or takes us home when we have no need to confess our ongoing sin. We confess our sin ongoingly because our sin is ongoing. We don't earn points by confession. We don't maintain our salvation by confession. Confession isn't penance. 
It's not payment or repayment for sin. God is not like a mean big brother who who holds his little brother's arms behind his back until he says uncle 20 times and then we'll let him go. That's not confession according to the Bible or according to God. Also, confession isn't a new law, a rigid system of points and, and demerits. You do not maintain your salvation by batting a thousand, by, by confessing every sin perfectly, thoroughly. Who, who would ever know whether you've done it enough? Who would ever know whether you cried enough? Whether you talked to him about it long enough? Who would ever know whether you, you've plumbed the depths of your motives and you got below the sin, to the sin, to the sin? We know sins like that. But who can search their own hearts like that? God doesn't call us to that specifically, not that we should never do it, but I just want you to notice the simplicity of this. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. None of us are batting a thousand on confession of sin, and none of us should treat the confession of sin like some sort of new works righteousness system as if we could ever maintain it. If that's you today, It's time for you to give up. It's time for you to begin by confessing your trust in your own confessions. Confession is flinging yourself on the mercy of God. Confession is simply acknowledging sin that you notice before God for what it is. It could be as simple as possible. I I don't know. Some are longer. You read through the Psalms and some are very quick confessions, some are much longer. Some are simple, you don't get any indication that a tear was shed, and others look like this was written on a tear-soaked page. But confession leans upon Christ alone, or else it's something other than confession. The great Princeton theologian, B.B. Warfield, wrote this in the early 1900s. He said, there is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development because of which we're acceptable to God. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake or we cannot ever be accepted at all. This is true of us not only when we believe, it's just as true after we have believed. It'll continue to be true as long as we live. Our need of Christ doesn't cease with our believing nor does the nature of our relationship to him ever alter, no matter what our attainments in Christian grace and growth is. It is always on his blood and righteousness alone that we can rest. So confession in some ways is a verbal rest in Christ. Let's develop, let's grow and cultivate an instinct to notice sin, number one, and to talk to God about our sin. Third, and the last error is in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Apparently some had said, I actually don't sin. It's not a problem for me anymore. I'm past that. That might be an issue for others, but I actually don't sin, so I don't need to confess. I don't need to bring it to him 
as I walk in the light. I'm, I'm constantly in the light. Well, the strongest language of rebuke and, and, and clarification is used in this category, this error. When we say sin isn't sin, or when we say that we don't have any sins, we actually not only lie, that's earlier on, one of the first errors. With this one, you make God a liar. God has said in his word that this is going to be an issue for us until heaven. We're going to sin. Any Christian who says, I would admit to sinning if I actually sinned. Do you know people like that? I have a pastor friend who unfortunately jokes to his family uh, I'll apologize as soon as I do something wrong um, well that should not be the heartbeat of a Christian we should not make God a liar some may even prove that his word is not in them by their persistence of their perfection Sin is a big deal, and minimizing sin is a big deal. Forgiven Christians should not minimize sin. In fact, they all the more should know what it costs to get the forgiveness of sins. The cross of Christ. You think sin is a little thing? Look at the cross. Look at what it costs to free you from that guilt. Or maybe you think that your sin is so powerful that that cross can't do anything to it, that Jesus' blood and righteousness can't touch it, he can't fix it. Ears is too great, it's too much, it's, it's too long, it's too deep and dark. But you don't know about the power of Jesus' blood. You don't know about the power and the glory and the victory of the cross. You don't know that when he said it is finished, a payment was made. You don't get that when he was raised on the third day. That was it. God put his stamp of approval on the sacrifice that was made. And now anyone who comes to him in faith with their sin can leave it right there and he'll take care of it. He'll put it in the depths of the sea, move it from us as far as the east is from the west. This is the gospel. This is Christianity. It's a life, the word of life, Jesus. How do we know about that? Some people saw him and heard him and beheld him and touched him. And they carefully wrote it down. And they wrote it down and it's been told and it's been told and it's been told and it's been told. And here we are today in fellowship with God, in fellowship with each other, and in joy sitting under a new and fresh declaration of the gospel with renewed energy, I hope, to leave this place fleeing from sin, walking in light, giving him our sin, bringing it to him when we sin, talking to him about it because we can, because he cleanses our sin. If I can just close with this of chapter 2, couple verses here in chapter 2 of 1 John nicely summarize all that's been said thus far. My little children, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Christian, don't sin. 
That sin, you know. You know. You know. That sin, don't do it anymore. Let it go. Give it up. Bring it to him and ask for his help. Don't sin. But if anyone does sin, John says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, a go-between between us and Jesus in the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the propitiation, the payment, the quenching of God's wrath, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that Jesus paid for your sins? I pray you do. Let's pray for his help to believe and trust these things more. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blood. That is, for your death, for the cross. It was no ordinary death, but a a cosmic spiritual payment. And yet it was indeed physical. In your physical body, you bore such great pain and grief. In your spirit, you knew what it was to be abandoned by God as you bore our sin. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the gift of your grace. We thank you for your ongoing advocacy that you intercede for us. We thank you, Lord, for big words like propitiation, that you quenched the Father's wrath on our behalf. Lord, give us comfort where that's needed. Give us conviction this morning where that's needed. Help us, Lord, take this message to the whole world. It's not for us only. We thank you for that. Help us now to sing and to confess together with great joy and in great fellowship as we sing about your blood. Amen.